The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings of New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and I'm pleased that uh, after a long break we're back here with Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hi Dave. Now um, in the last episode we uh, heard about your conversion to the wonderful de Havilland Canada Caribou and uh, we'd sort of 
got to the point where you had converted to the caribou and we talked a little bit about the operations uh, of the caribou and um, we'll start off with a, a little bit more about the uh, operating the caribou with, with you as the um, captain. Well, okay. Um, I flew the caribou on and off after my graduation and my near-death experience at Tupi. I flew the caribou on and off for about the next nine years. But I say on and off because something else happened in my Air Force career along the way, and that is they started sending me to ground jobs, you know, sitting behind a desk. I hadn't had one up until this stage. I'd had the first 11, 12 years of my Air Force career doing nothing but flying, and it was wonderful. And suddenly, you know, I won't get onto that now, but I got stuck behind a desk. But initially, having graduated, and um, uh, I was made a captain, caribou captain, straight off my conversion course because of my former experience. Myself and one other guy got that. The other people on the course who were straight off their pilots course, so they became co-pilots, right? Right. <clears throat> However, that made me a captain for caribou operations in Australia, but not in Papua New Guinea, because that's slightly more treacherous, as I learnt, you know, as I mentioned before, about landing on sloping, sloping strips and things and bad weather. So the deal was I'd go up there and uh, act as a co-pilot for a month um, before upgrading. And that's exactly what happened. Very shortly after uh, um, I got back from the conversion course, I was sent back to Papua New Guinea for two months. Okay. Um, posted there as part of the a permanent detachment there, supporting, you know, Australian operations in the field. Because in those days, uh, Papua New Guinea was still uh, under the governance of Australia. And we had these ranges and kiaps, as they're called, um, out there, which we had to support. Anyway, so for the first month, I uh, I was co-pilot, which was fine. I met some really interesting guys, a couple of whom became almost lifelong friends uh, long after I left the Air Force. And um, learnt how to manage the weather and this big aeroplane into these funny little fields all over the place but mostly how to navigate and think your way around the weather because that was the biggest hazard of the lot. Right. Harking back to when I was flying Sabres I remember zooming down the valleys in, in Malaya at 450 knots coming around a corner and being confronted by a thunderstorm and a wall of rain just leveling the wings and pulling back and doing a roll off the top of 20,000 feet higher than the highest mountain in the countryside and going looking for the hole to have some more fun. Yep. There were times in a caribou where I'd come around a corner and be confronted by a thunderstorm and a wall of water and a blue hole above, and I'm wishing I could do the same thing in the caribou. <laughs> I think if I hold back on the stick, I could make 500 feet in a zoom climb, and that's it. So this little voice is saying, no, mate, you can't do that. You've got to think your way out of this. And oh, dear. And so there were times there, it's hard to explain, but you just had to think. I mean, it would be nothing to head off for a one-hour straight line flight and spend two hours getting there, yep. ducking and weaving around the valleys and so forth. And uh, sometimes you would, uh, you press it a bit too far. You know, you'd see the co-pilot starting to sit on the edge of his seat, so, <laughs> despite <laughs> the fact he's strapped in. So you'd have a rethink. And uh, I can recall getting a little ahead of myself already on one particular occasion where we were going, I had to take some gear into, into Lay from Port Moresby. And we had to go in through a thing called the Sunshine Gap, which was a little tributary valley into the main Markham Valley, which runs to the west of Ley. And as we, once you get into the Sunshine Gap, you can drop down into the Markham Valley and it should be okay. But even the Sunshine Gap, the badly named, was full of cloud. We're getting lower and lower and lower. I guess we're about oh, 200 feet above the trees and 200 feet below the cloud. And, but they were both merging in the windscreen out in the distance. And I had this epiphany. I said, 
hit the button and said to the loadmaster, Loady, remind me what we're carrying again, will you? And he said, sir, we're carrying empty plastic jerry cans and wooden trestle tables for a cadet bivouac. And I said, I thought that's what we were carrying. Immediately rolled on 60 degrees of bank and did a really tight U-turn and flew an hour and a half back to Port Moresby. Because there was just no way I was going to start pushing any further into this crappy weather. Got back there and the boss at the time looked at me and said, couldn't get through, huh? No, okay, no problem. That was it. Spent three hours, hour and a half out, hour and a half back, couldn't get through. That was the norm. We also used to rotate our casual pilots up at this dep- uh, this this thing about every couple of months because they would start to push a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further as you got to really know it. So time to bring them home. Reality check. So I had that a couple of times myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess like getting ahead. But for the first 12 months, I uh, sorry, the first uh, month, I uh, was co-pilot there. And I think I mentioned in the previous interview that very early on in this first, as, as my co-pilot, flying out of WeWork, we dropped in the little town of Taji. Yes. Town, airfield of Taji. Yeah where we found all of these uh, derelict World War II fighters, Air Cobras and P-40s, right. one of which um, is now here in New Zealand. In fact, subsequent to that last um, talk, talking about this one, I went down to the air show at Masterton um, at Hood Airfield only a couple of months ago, um, this is early 2015, and there it was, right. and ran across Liz Needham, who I'd never met before, but walked up and said, good day, you know, um, my name's Noel, and, and I'd met your aeroplane long before you did. And she was ecstatic. <laughs> I'd actually seen her aeroplane parked in the long grass uh, at, uh, at Taji Airfield, looking a lot worse than it looks now. It's exactly, been a yeah. brilliant, yeah. beautiful restoration. So, yeah, small world. After 12 months, I was then allowed to captain the aeroplane. I shared this a little bit. Sometimes uh, I'd be co-pilot with my senior guys but 75% captain, just to get my own confidence in, in doing things and flying around there. And we used to do all sorts of, 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 of interesting things from a pilot's point of view. I don't know how interesting it is from just a listener's point of view, because basically what we were doing was carrying cargo from A to B to B to A. Sounds boring, except you know, you're doing it through this obstacle course of rocks and rain and mountains and things. And uh, every pilot up there had his own map of the area. Not just a map, but his own map. If you borrowed someone else's map, it was you know, almost a death sentence okay. because you would draw on your map all the little things that you, you used to recognize. A, a hill, a cluster of trees. Sometimes it's amazing how little things on a feature will stand out as unique to you. Huh? Yeah. And so you had all of the, all the, the official gaps, as they're called, marked on your map with the minimum gap altitudes. And this was something that people didn't quite get. Um, most of the, the, the mountainous gaps there are forged by rivers, not like fjords here in New Zealand, which are big square bottom things. Yeah. So as a result, as you go deeper and deeper in the valley, the, the, the gap between the left side and the right side gets narrower and narrower to right down to only the width of a river. Right? Yeah. You do not fly that low in the valley, because if you have to make a U-turn, you can't. You have to fly only so low that you can make a U-turn in a caribou. Yeah by racking on 75 degrees of bank, pulling three Gs. You know? So I used to configure the caribou uh, when, when the weather was bad in these, these gaps, uh, slow it down a bit, drop 10 degrees of flap, bring the propellers up to uh, sort of climb RPM, but the manifold pressure way back, keep speed back. So if you need to turn, you could roll on the bank, slam on the power and hook it around the corner quickly. And you can only do that at a certain altitude in the gap. Okay. Higher than that, you had more room. Less than that, you had no room or not enough room. And you could, um, as one of my course buddies did slam a caribou into the sidewall of a valley killing everyone on board 
um, which is bad news story. They had 32 people on board, only two survived. Wow. Uh, in fact, the only way they found the wreckage in the jungle, because the caribou, of course, is the perfect colour for getting lost in the jungle, <laughs> olive green in the jungle. Uh, these two kids, it was an air training corps cadets, so these two kids managed to extricate themselves down the side of the hill and were walking down the river valley. Two, three days after they'd gone missing, still hadn't been found, helicopter pilot spotted them, fished them out, and they directed him back again. Wow. Sad story. He was below, he hit the, hit the wall below the minimum gap height, right? So you had all these penciled onto your map, which, which was the gap, what was your minimum height, and you did not go below that. If you ran into a storm or rain or whatever, which is quite common, you could do a U-turn and get out of there, which is exactly what I did with this sunshine gap thing I just talked about. We were getting right onto the minimum height to do it, and it was looking worse ahead, so I had to make that decision right there to get the hell out of there. So your own personal map had all the little notes and so forth on it, okay? Yeah. We also had a, a local version of what uh, pilots would call the uh, flight information supplements you get now through the AIPs, which airfield diagrams yep. and which way to do a circuit and all the rest of it. You know, it's all pretty standard for GA work. We had these books with photographs of the airfields pasted in and then a pilot's description of how to get in there. Okay. Right? None of which was standard. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a photograph of the airfield from above so you didn't misinterpret because quite often you could. we had another two incidents up there uh, of pilots landing at the wrong airfield because oh, they misidentified it in the, in, in the crappy weather and both airplanes coming to grief or damaged. Um, <clears throat> and also a photograph of what it looked like on the approach and a description of how to get onto the approach. Um, the classic one was a place called Tarpini, which wasn't in fact a difficult strip if you got it right. And I'll rephrase that. It was a spectacular looking strip. It looked a whole lot more dangerous than it really was if you got it right. Yeah. But it was in a valley. The valley itself was about 4,000 feet deep. And there was a little ridge halfway up the valley wall, 2,000 feet from the top and 2,000 feet from the bottom, which the runway was on. Wow. At 90 degrees to the valley. This was a ridge which stuck out far enough for the runway to be 90 degrees. So you could approach across the valley, land on this strip, and it had a 14% slope which means you're really going uphill at the end. You actually have to cl apply climb power to get to the top of the hill after you landed. Yep. Right? And then you park sideways so it wouldn't slide back down again. <laughs> a one-way strip, obviously, because right at the end of the strip, the mountains continue for another 2,000 feet. There's no way you could go around, no way you could do anything. Once you turned on the finals, you were committed to land. <laughs> the catch was, flying down the valley, like the base leg down the valley, you couldn't see the strip because another little knoll sticking out just before it. You couldn't see the strip until a, a matter of, 10 seconds before it's time to turn finals. So how the hell did you know if you're at the right height to be in the groove to land? On the other side of the valley was a goat track, which ran diagonally down the wall of the, of the, of the mountains, right? Yep. And goats happened to walk down hills at about a three or four degree angle. <laughs> <laughs> we called this the Tarpini ILS. So the deal was in the written blurb, about four miles south of this, the valley opened up a bit. So you would descend into this open area, configure the aircraft for landing, get your 20 odd degrees of flap down initially, undercarry down, everything all set, propeller set and all. Then you would fly at a certain height down the valley until your right wing tip intercepted the Tarpini ILS, the goat track. Back to approach power and you would fly down the goat track, monitoring it out for your right wing tip, make sure you're flying down it, and looking out to the left side for the runway to appear around the corner. And it did, you rolled and lined up and there you were. And then you'd land, touch down, and apply climb power to get to the top of the hill. Ta-da! <laughs> 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 uh, 
I cannot imagine that being written in any CIA document <laughs> which would pass any sort of safety scrutiny. And of course, it wasn't too far from Port Moresby. So at any time that we had some very senior officers who'd come up to check on the thing, we'd take them in there first and their eyes would be out on stalk because they stand up between the seats and it would really get their attention. Then you'd say, this is one of the easier ones, Master. We'll take you to a few tricky ones later on. <laughs> um, it was spectacular. Um, I landed in there several times, and of course, if you had, on takeoff, it was all equally spectacular because the, even the, the um, even though it was a fourteen percent slope, it had a sort of a ski jump at the end. Right. So that the uh, towards the uphill end, if you like, it was up to almost twenty percent, which is why you needed power to get to the top of the hill. If you stopped halfway up, you couldn't get back up there again. Right. It was actually quite difficult because you didn't have enough length to take off, didn't have power to get back up. You had to get the tractor out or something. <laughs> <laughs> but taking off, from the instant you release the brakes, if you had an engine failure, you were still committed to go. Right. You couldn't stop the aeroplane. Right. And we used to practice this. You'd be halfway down the takeoff roll doing 45 knots or so, and you'd pull an engine and just keep going. Okay? You would accelerate to minimum control airspeed by the time you got to the end, and then you just fell off the cliff and rolled on in the direction of the, away from the, the, the dead engine, down the valley. You had another 2,000 feet to descend to get flying speed. It looked very spectacular. It was actually quite safe. Okay. But you know, you're so close to all these trees and valley walls that actually, I'd, we mentioned before about having a GoPro on board. This is the one place you really want to see a yeah, GoPro to get yeah. this. I guess the, um, the takeoff, you would normally be empty anyway because you've dropped your load off. Not necessarily. Okay. Sometimes, I remember one time I went in there, we were delivering a Land Rover in there. Um, and I think we picked up the hulk of the one that got crashed or something. I can't remember. We oh, did, right. it, you weren't super heavy, no. Yeah. No. But it didn't matter. You know, mass accelerates under gravity, so you, <laughs> if you're heavy, you wind up going a bit faster. But the thing is, once you're committed to the takeoff, if you lost an engine, you kept going. If you lost both engines, well, that's a whole different story. I don't know what you do, then you become a glider. But <laughs> the thing that gets me about strips like that, Noel, is you guys were given these directions by the guys who went before you, but imagine the first guy who ever landed there. I mean, <laughs> you know, how the hell did they... Well, uh, funny you should mention that because I had a one occasion, I was getting fairly experienced on the aeroplane by now, fortunately, where we'd lost that page from the book somehow. Ah. It's like this ring binder book and everyone, you know, there was four or five of them, one per aircraft at least, plus yeah. a spare. And you drag this thing out. The page wasn't there on this particular strip. And I was a bugger, you know, so I had to suss it out for myself. And I had three goes. Fortunately, we had a go-around potential. The strip was again on the side of a valley, but it was aligned with the valley. So you have to nudge yourself right over hard against the left-hand wall to be lined up with it. Yep. And, uh, and the, but you could always break away to the right into the valley and go around. But I couldn't, I couldn't get shallow enough. I mean, there was, this other, there was this village on a ridgeline about a mile short of it. And to try and turn inside the, the ridgeline just puts you too damn steep. Even with the power right off and the flaps down, you're too damn steep and too fast. Yep. So finally we decided, well, we're going to have to sort of fly down the main street of the village and then drop over the edge of this. So we figured that out after the third go and uh, went down further and then aimed at a couple of little grass huts on the top of the ridge. And as soon as we passed them, closed the throttle, boom, and then we were on the right approach. Landed, did our thing. Got back to Port Moresby, found the page lying in the, on the floor somewhere, had fallen out. And sure enough, guess what it said? It said, aim at the third house from the left. <laughs> and just before you're going to hit it, close the throttles and push over and you'll be on, on, on the right approach path. So we re we rediscovered the re, re engineered the whole thing. Um, so yeah, people did. Uh, they had to go out and suss these things out and write you know, the right way to do it. 
and sometimes trees would grow taller, so you had to change it. Watch out for the trees on the left, they're taller than last year and all. This was a hell of a challenge. So when you say to people, oh, I'm just flying from A to B, yeah, A was Port Moresby, piece of cake. B, wow. And again, as I said, we used to say to these um, senior officers, oh, this is the, an easy one. In spectacular, probably the most spectacular. It was low level. We were only a couple of thousand feet above sea level, really. The, the valley was quite close to the edge of the ranges. Um, so aircraft performance-wise, fine. There were other strips which did not look nearly as spectacular, which were more hazardous, because we were at eight, 9,000 foot density altitude, where the aircraft's performance was way down and uh, you had to be right on the J-O-B because you had no go-round potential, that sort of thing, even though they didn't look quite as spectacular. Um, you don't have to hit a 2,000-foot mountain to kill yourself. A 200-foot mountain will do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? so, so if the 200-foot mountain is on the end of the runway, it doesn't look as spectacular, but if you're going to hit it, you're going to be just as dead. Exactly, yeah. And there were a whole bunch of places like that in, in the highlands which were quite tricky. Uh, names escape me now, most of them. So every one you had to treat with respect and uh, getting there was difficult and then treating the strip with respect and out came the book and you'd read through the approaches and all the rest of it and the photographs. After a while, uh, different guys got to be sort of specialists in different areas. Right. I, I kind of liked and became the Western Highlands specialist, if you like, um, way over near the Papua New Guinea, the Irian Jaya border. Um, I got to know that pretty well, the valleys. You got to recognize the bends in the valleys after a while, know exactly where you were. Because I must reiterate, I think I said this the last time, there was no GPS in those days. Uh, the, the v, there was a VOR site at, and an ILS at Port Moresby because that was a big international field, piece of cake. Ley and Medang, I think, had a VOR, but they were all coastal cities. In the mountains, there was nothing. All you had was a map and a pencil yeah. and a knowledge of what it looked like last time you were here. And that's the way you went. So you had to find your way through these valleys and sometimes they look different in the rain and all. So it was just one hell of a challenge. It really was. Anyway, I went back up there after I got my initial captaincy. I then went back up there, I think, uh, another three or four times. Three times, probably a couple of months here. Total about six months up there. Most pilots went up there a little bit more frequently than I did because an interesting thing happened in my case when I got back there. Um, here I was, a fairly senior. I'm in a flight, I've been a flight lieutenant now for uh, a couple of years. Yep. Right? and uh, most of the pilots were pilot officers and flying officers straight off pilot's course. So I'm fairly senior in regards to rank, yep. but I'm fairly junior in terms of caribou experience. The uh, 38 Squadron at the time, in fact all of the time I was, it was the biggest squadron in the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, let me explain that. When you're flying fighters, the, 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 the fighter squadrons I was with all had their jets, all had their pilots, and had a front line or first line maintenance operation of you know, maybe a hundred guys and they'd do all the pre-flights and tow the airplanes around and refuel and get them ready to fly. But if there was anything seriously wrong, they'd go to a separate organization, a maintenance depot, yep. where they might be down for a week while they changed an undercarriage leg or something like that. And then for any really serious overhaul stuff, they'd go to the aircraft depot, which is where I used to be the test pilot, right? right. Where they ripped them all apart and rebuild them and send them back again. So this, the, the fighter squadron only had a very limited amount of maintenance capability. And even the C-130 squadron, same deal. Yep. C-130s, big aeroplanes, very complicated. There were two squadrons of those things there. Uh, but they always sent them for any serious work to a separate organization, a maintenance depot, to do that. And uh, car the caribou case, none of the above. 38 squadron did the lot. 
right from jacking them up and ripping the wheels off and ripping engines out and putting new ones on and all the rest of it, all the way down to the first line maintenance. So as a result, the squadron was divided into two distinct halves. There was the engineering side, which had a senior engineering officer, and he had some 200, 250 troops working for him right. of all musterings, airframes, engines, electrics, hydraulics, the whole bit. And they could rebuild a caribou from the ground up, right? Yeah. But they were 38 squadron. On the other side was the flying side, where you had an executive officer or chief pilot type guy who was in charge of three separate flying flights. A flight, B flight, C flight. A flight was the training flight, which I went through, yep. all the training. And then it was B and C flight, which just divided up the number of, uh, of personnel and so forth into manageable chunks. Okay. We had um, about 15, it varied a little bit because we had caribous coming home from, from Vietnam at the time. The maximum number, I think, at one stage before they were spit off uh, into another squadron was about 20 caribous. Each caribou has a crew of three, pilot, co-pilot and a loadmaster. So we're talking straight away about uh, 60, but there's always excess crew. So we had about 80 aircrew, yep. right? um, plus all these ground troops. So we're talking in the order of 350, 380 personnel in this thing. It's the biggest squadron in the, in, the, in the Air Force. And was it the only squadron flying the caribou? No, um, there was 35 squadron. It was in Vietnam, 38 squadron. Uh, about the time I got there, right, the Vietnam War was still on. 35 Squadron was doing its thing in, in Vietnam, which and they had half a dozen aeroplanes. Right. They were supported by 38 Squadron, who had, said, normally a squadron would have, say, 12 aeroplanes. Yep. I think that's about, we had a total of about 24 caribous. We dinged a few, like the one I was in. Yep. Let's say 20. Six of those was in Vietnam. The other 14 or so would be uh, at, at Richmond, so slightly larger than normal. But there was a phase there where suddenly, uh, just, just about the time that I joined them, actually, they cancelled the war. They must have heard I was coming, and they, and they, and they gave up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we won it, though, do we? No. no. <laughs> Maybe if they let me in, we could have. That's a whole other story. We won't go there. Um, so these other caribous then came home. So about that time, we had an influx of pilots. We had an influx of caribous. Then they reformed 35 Squadron um, at Richmond. But for a few months it was bigger, but they were, they were still all there. Yeah. And even though 35 Squadron was reformed at Richmond as a flying unit, it was still dependent upon 38 Squadron for all the maintenance. Right. They didn't have a separate maintenance deal, they never did. Yeah. Right? Okay. So it was a bit more like a fighter squadron or a C-130 squadron, just the flying side of it. Yeah. It was just to sort of try and separate all of these people so you could manage them better, because you, know? you had to have senior pilots organizing junior pilots yeah. and sometimes a bit like herding cats you know you have to <laughs> keep them all under control <laughs> especially the guys back from Vietnam yeah. they come back with some distinctly cowboy attitudes about flying <laughs> what do you mean I'm not allowed to wear my nine mil pistol when I'm visiting the flight services at mascot <laughs> so in the middle of all of this this was all happening about the time I'm, I'm getting myself together there the uh, the flight commander of the B flight, which I was in, got moved to become the temporary commanding officer of the um, of the thing because this wing commander, who was supposed to be the CO, who was on my conversion course, took ill, I believe heart problem, right? Couldn't take his post. So flight commander was moved across. For some reason, he bypassed the execo's position. I don't think we had one or something like that stage. Anyway, he came to me and said, congratulations, no, you're the flight commander. Right. Huh? <laughs> like I said, I'm probably the most junior caribou pilot or junior caribou captain there at least, and I'm now the flight commander. I'm in charge of all these guys, including some of these Vietnam cowboys. So that was quite a challenge to keep them under control. 
But as I said uh, in the earlier thing there, the one thing that impressed me about these guys was their ability to get on with the job. Um, if we were all fighter pilots, we'd all be around all day getting in each other's hair and causing riots. But these guys would go away. They'd take an aeroplane and they'd vanish for three, four days or a week or so. At any given time, half of the caribous weren't there. They were away doing some job of some sort, yes. right? Somewhere in Australia, North Queensland, South Australia, wherever. And once they're away, all these guys rose to the occasion. They might have been a bit tear away back home amongst their guys and their mates where there was a party on at the weekends or so. But once they got away, they all rose to the occasion. I cannot think of one occasion where you have to sort of discipline anyone for not doing the job and not and showing the Air Force in good light to the locals. They all did the job. Yeah. And that was good. So in other words, basically when you're losing control, then you'd send them all away somewhere. <laughs> and they all came back having flown their bus off, you know, 100 hours in a month or so, and they were quiet for a while. So I wound up being the flight commander, and that was interesting from my point of view, because suddenly I now have this sort of rapid promotion, if you like, in terms of my responsibility. Right. So I've gone from uh, being a single pilot, single jet in a, in a controlled environment into running this whole thing, which I was only getting a handle on. Uh, but it was interesting. So I didn't get to go to Papua New Guinea as often as the other guys because I sort of had this other responsibility of things to do. Right. But you settled into it. Then um, after, I'm two years into this now, two and a bit years after the conversion course, and then the most horrible thing in my life occurred. I got my first ground job. Oh. <gasps> And I was sent to the RAF base at Wagga as an education officer. And you think, what the hell? The reason being that I've got this strange job. Myself and two other guys, another caribou guy and, 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 and another ex-fighter pilot. The reason being is the Air Force, believe it or not, had an excess of pilots at that stage because Qantas had stopped recruiting for a while. Right. They always used to suck pilots out of the Air Force. The Air Force is always the greatest recruiter, training ground for Qantas. Qantas was having a big setback and uh, as a result they weren't recruiting, indeed they were even laying off some of their pilots. Some of the guys that went with me to Qantas interviews a few years previously and had got jobs were suddenly out of work. So the Air Force had all of these pilots and didn't know what to do with them. They had to make room for other guys coming off pilots course to at least do some flying. So people like me who now at this stage have been flying straight for 12, 13 years, that was my turn to get stuck behind a desk. So I wound up uh, down at Wagga teaching instructional technique to sergeants and things like that. As it turned out, it was a kind of a fun job. I couldn't take it too seriously. The job was to teach qualified tradesmen how to teach the next rung down their job. For instance, a sergeant welder who knew his job thoroughly, but did not have a clue as to how to impart his knowledge to the new corporal who had just been promoted and posted in, right? right. So we taught them these techniques, you know, skill, skill lesson techniques. A little bit of theory, but mostly skill. So they would do what they would could do, but then teach them how to... I'm stumbling over my words here, but for instance, I was taught how to light a welding torch. Yep. The guy started out giving a lesson on welding and just lit this torch and didn't tell anyone how to do it. So I'm saying, well, hang on. First, you've got to tell the kids how to light the torch. And so we went through torch lighting procedures and safety procedures. And all. So I learned how to light a welding torch. I learned how to break into a motor car. <laughs> and a whole, a whole bunch of interesting lessons were given by these guys. Not necessarily the thing they did in the Air Force, but something that they, they knew. You know, 
imparting their skill to other people. And of course, these courses for these guys only ran for about three weeks. Yeah. And we always had two courses overlapping. So every week and a half to two weeks, there was a farewell party. So it was a good party posting. We had lots of parties and I learned lots of oddball skills. But the other curious part about this was I was sharing this little uh, deal with um, four, five um, other education officers who are genuine recruited education officers. They were all draft dodgers. <laughs> That's why I used to call them bloody draft dodgers. <laughs> when the Vietnam War was in full swing and, and the, the Australian government uh, decided that they'd start um, conscripting people, yeah. a whole bunch of these, yeah, quite well. Some of them were already school teachers and doing responsible jobs at university and so forth, decided, well, bugger that. I'm not going to go and wade around at a paddy field with some guy shooting at me. So they actually applied for and were accepted into the Air Force as education officers. Right. Um, and they were quite skilled at their thing. Now, having called them draft dodgers, I, I, I say that with my tongue in my cheek because, yeah, they were, but at the end of the day, I'm aware of at least three of them, maybe four, who, after their short term was up, stayed in the Air Force. They, they liked it so much and saw an avenue there. Yeah. So the reality is that some of these guys actually improved the general standards of, say, if you like, education officer, and I'm sure in other spheres too that I was involved with, because they got into the Air Force rather than going and being a grunt in the, in the, in the paddy fields of Vietnam, and stayed on because they liked it, and actually, if you like, enhanced the quality of what they did. Yeah. So that was fun. But again, they were all uh, junior to me in terms of rank, but I was the most junior in terms of the skill level. Right. We had a squadron leader who was uh, another education officer. I was the only what they call general duties pilot officer in the whole thing. I was fish out of water here. Um, but we had a squadron leader who was our little boss of the, our small unit there. Every once in a while, though, he'd go away to do some boss-type thing for a week or so. So I'm made the boss because of my rank. Right. Right? So I make a few decisions and pass things down the line, and then he comes back. I get back to being the junior education officer to field the very thing I pass down the line for the junior guy to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there was this great disparity between my rank and my, and my, my skill level. But um, I got pretty good at teaching instructional technique, using all the approved techniques and all the rest of it. I'd already done a uh, an instructional technique course as part of my fighter combat training instructor's training so I had a bit that's probably why I was sent there because I on paper at least had a qualification right. but it was expanded a hell of a lot and this stood me in good stead years later when I started my own flying school I started teaching my own flying instructors in teaching the whole thing yeah. and indeed for a quick commercial here my book four which I've written on flight inst flight instructional technique in the cockpit is based upon those principles that I learned there Right. And uh, that book four is now um, outselling all the others. I think there's a bunch of flying instructors out there who suddenly realise that what I'm saying is really good. Great. Mostly because most of the public, I'm getting way ahead now, but off track, but most of the publications about how to be a, flying, a civilian flying instructor and all the manuals you're supposed to, to look at and, and, and all that are all about how to give theory lessons and so forth on the ground. Right. They don't talk a lot about how to give the skill lesson in the air. Okay. And after all, learning to fly is mostly an in-the-air type thing. You don't <laughs> learn to fly on the ground. Yeah. You can't learn to ride a horse by studying theory. You've got to get on its back. Yeah. So whilst all of these kids who are doing flying instructor courses these days are full up with the theory and how to, how to present their, their, their lessons on whiteboards and things like that and how to use over projector slides, half of which they won't find at half the flying schools they go to work for, 
and none of which is useful in the cockpit. So I've written about that, and I'm way off the track now. It's a free commercial, but I don't feel bad about that because the books are free anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, at about 12 months' time in this, I get promoted again to squadron leader. Ta-da! Whoa, I'm now a senior officer. And so I then get sent... I can't stay on there because, you know, it just does, I, squadron leaders can't be doing what I'm supposed to be doing there. I get set back to headquarters operational command uh, into probably the worst desk job I've ever had. I hoped I'd get back to flying straight away. I didn't. Yeah. It was a terrible job. It was just pushing paper around a desk and I don't even want to try and explain what I was doing because I'd look for every possible way of getting out of that job as quick as I could. And a couple of incidences came up where I did get out of that job. Um, my dates may be a little bit off now, but the first example of this came because it was about this time when Indonesia invaded Timor. Right. And the Air Force was running a couple of caribous um, into Dili and back to Darwin, uh, relief operations and so forth, because the Indonesians hadn't got that far across to Dili yet. I was sent to Darwin as the um, uh, air staff officer to help run these aeroplanes back and forth. And um, that was a pretty easy job because I said the caribou pilots know their stuff and know, know what to do by themselves. So I really just did a bit of paperwork and spent the rest of the time enjoying myself. Right. Uh, but I did come across, and I'll, this is a subject of probably a further talk about my civilian side of my life, but I did run across uh, a guy up there who had a pit special. So I came away from um, Darwin with a conversion, a full type check on a pit special. Right. which kind of was the beginning of my other life. Exactly. All right? This was in 1976. I think that was about the date. I'm, I'm losing track. It doesn't matter anyway. About 76. That, but we talk about my other life another time, I guess. And then, um, still in this same crappy job, um, towards the end of it, but I'm getting bored out of my mind, you know, because I haven't flown anything much. No, no military airplanes. I just started getting back into civilian flying with pit specials and things. Another opportunity came along. A guy came wandering around the headquarters asking if anyone was interested in being the Air Force's commentator for all the air shows. Right. And I immediately stuck up my hand. Yes, me. Have you ever done it before? No. Can you do it? Yes. Okay. I became the Air Force's official air show commentator and that lasted until I retired from the Air Force. I did dozens and dozens of military shows all around the place. They branched out into civilian shows, again, subject of another another discussion, I suppose. Um, but that's what I did for quite a bit of any desk job that I had was organising military air shows. Or not, not organising, but commentating. Although towards the end, the 60th anniversary one, I was actually also in charge of the choreography of the whole thing. Right. Uh, I had yet another desk job then, which was in exercise planning, which was not an uninteresting job. But the exercise that I was given to plan was the 60th anniversary flying display, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Whole other story. Anyway, um, somewhere in the middle of all this, this me trying to get out of the desk job I've got, um, I again get a posting, go back and fly caribous. Great. Right? Fine. So I get back there. I, I go through the whole conversion course again to refresh me because it's now been about two and a half, three years since I've flown one, that's okay. And uh, I'm posted in this time as the executive officer, right? So I'm number two to the CO, 
and uh, the other number two is the chief engineering officer and I'm sort of the chief pilot of the squadron and we have the commanding officer running with Perivis and underneath me I've got three flights doing their thing and uh, I figured by now I can do this having been uh, uh, a temporary flight commander for some time in the previous job yep. I can handle this so I get posted in there and within oh a very short time I'm guessing now a few weeks a month again the same thing happens the guy who's supposed to be posted in as the commanding officer has had a heart attack right. and there's no one to replace him Noel, congratulations, you're the commanding officer. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I wind up as a squadron leader being the commanding officer of the largest squadron in the Royal Australian Air Force. And at that time, not only do we have all those airplanes I'm talking about and all the ground troops, we also had three overseas detachments running. Right. We had uh, an aircraft with the United Nations in Pakistan, India-Pakistan border. We had an airplane, two airplanes floating around in uh, Irian Jaya and Sumatra on survey operations, and we had our permanent attachment of two to three airplanes in Papua New Guinea, with crews rotating and airplanes being swapped over through all of these, plus all the on-ground operations. So I was feeling pretty chuffed. You know, I did the world, I was juggling all of these things. And there was initially times where I felt a little bit overwhelmed by it all, but about that stage, of course, or not about, but exactly that stage, entered another very senior officer who, who, who was a really good mentor. I spoke about um, Sir James Rollins earlier on when I was a test pilot. The OC of the base, right? his name was Jeff Michaels. And of course he realised that straight away that uh, you know putting a young squadron leader in, in, in this position would be rather challenging. So he sort of came down. Uh, we had these old, I think I mentioned earlier on, the old World War II style things where the CO's office all rested right on the tarmac. Look out the window and there's the aeroplane saw. And of course, being the OC, you could drive his car down the tarmac and all. So we bring, come down, he park outside, he walk in and say, how's it going, Noel? You know, how are you feeling? How are you, how are you settling in? I say, oh, a bit tricky here. And we'd have these half-hour discussions on how to manage a, a squadron and all the rest of it. And so he became my mentor too in doing this, and he became a good friend. Yeah. Um, and years and years later, I came across him again. Uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned this when I was talking about James Rollins, when I went to Jim Rollins' funeral, you know? And I was standing in the crowd in my daggy sailing gear. And this guy came across and said, what are you doing there? And I'll come on inside. Well, it was the same guy. Was, this was uh, Jeff Michael. Right. Right. He recognized me from all those years previously and dragged me in. So, again, handy to, to know someone like that. A thorough gentleman, good guy. And unfortunately, as, I, as we speak, he died a week ago. Yeah. At the age of 91. Natural causes. So he, he survived pretty yeah. well. Uh, which is a shame. Anyway, so he would pop on down and, uh, and assist me, and he was really on side in helping me run things, because you know, he said, this, as a commanding officer, your job is to command. You know, you're not cream puff. Now, I've never been a real cream puff in my life, but there were times when I used to get these really nasty messages from, from the Defence Central about things that I'd done, and he'd come down and back me all the way, and I'd write back saying, well, I'm the CO, so we're doing it my bloody way. You know, stick it up your left nostril, and he would, he would countersign it and send it off. And... Uh, I remember we had a, I can't remember what the occasion was, was some ceremonial occasion at the base, the big parade, the whole of the base, the Richmond base, 3,000 people, all on parade. Of course, they're all divided up into their different squadrons and so forth. And then the big march past comes, and all the squadrons march past in order, number one, number two, number three. Well, he made 38 squadron, number one squadron for the parade, 
And of course, as the CEO, I'm at the front. So when the band plays and the big march pass and the salute and all the rest of it happens, I lead the entire parade pass, right? right? And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And he came to me afterwards and he said, how did you feel? And I said, well, a bit matter of fact, I suppose. I said, well, okay, I just march past. He said, do you know how long it's been since a squadron leader led a base what march past like that? Uh, I said, no. He said, probably not since World War II. Right. He set me up deliberately to do this. Because, yeah, you're supposed to be a wing commander to be a, a squadron CO, and every yeah. squadron had to have one up until this stage yeah. for such a big occasion. And I honestly can't remember the occasion. Then he set it up so a squadron leader led the entire base fly past, uh, well, march past. So that's the sort of guy he was. He did it sort of for me, if you like. I think I might have disappointed him by being a bit matter of fact about it, like, oh, I'm just marching and saluting. <laughs> um, so uh, that I, I was on the, I was, I was a so-called temporary CEO, but I was physically posted. My name is on the honours board, the whole bit there. Um, for 18 months. Normally it would be a two-year posting, but there was um, six months or so when the new CEO wasn't coming and all the rest of it, I'll take a conversion course. So it was slightly shorter than a normal tour. And right at the very end of that, um, realizing that uh, you know this might be the last flying job I get for a while, we had to move a caribou um, home from, or the caribou home from Pakistan. Yep. Our, our commitment to the United Nations was over the Canadians were taking it on or something like that. I don't know why. So I thought, well, what a fitting in for the commanding officer but to fly the caribou home from from Islamabad to Richmond, which is the longest I've ever flown an airplane anywhere in my life, before or since. And it was quite an odyssey. It took us about two weeks to get to depth, you know, <laughs> cruising at 140 knots uh, across India and uh, overnighting in Delhi and Calcutta and then... Uh, and it was just an interesting odyssey at low level, at low speed. And uh, we got as far, we had a two days off in Butterworth with the Air Force Base there while we completely steam cleaned the airplane from a hygiene point of view um, and cleaned every, every bit of crap out of every nook and cranny and so forth. And then started heading south. And uh, on the way to into Jakarta, we had our HF antenna coupler, electronic device, caught fire smoke in the cockpit the whole bit, open the windows, squirt the fire extinguisher. It's just the antenna coupler. It caught fire and it went out almost as quick. But we now had no HF radio. At VHF, the local ops, but no HF radio. And after Jakarta, we were going across to Bali and then across the Timor Sea, where we had to have HF radio. So we got into Jakarta, went via the embassy and sent a message home saying, hey, we need a new antenna coupler and uh, we'll we'll meet it uh, in Bali. We don't have to stay in Jakarta, we can get to Bali on VHF radio. So we cranked up the boom, we flew it to Bali, and then settled and waited for the, the antenna coupler to turn up, didn't we? So we had a forced two days off in Bali. Damn! <laughs> <laughs> Which was really nice. But the curious thing about it was, we had on board an electronics officer guy who was coming back with us, because he was part of the detachment up there in, uh, in, in Islamabad. And after we'd set this message off and one of this coupler, he happened to say, I think we were actually having a drink one night. He said something like, oh, gee, I hope they send the right one. I said, what do you mean send the right one? He said, well, it's two sorts of coupler. I said, but surely they know which sort goes into which airplane. He said, eh, paperwork on that's a bit hazy back there. <laughs> oh, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> he said, oh, no, it's okay. 75% of one sort, only 25% of the other sort. The next day, after being there two days, this Boeing 707 arrives 
with our coupler on board somewhere. Uh, but they can't find it. Someone, some idiot has lo loaded it with the 707's own spares. So here we are on the tarmac of, uh, of the Bali airport unloading every bag on board. Here's the people can't get off because they're not customs clear. All their baggage is being stacked on the tarmac. <laughs> well, we go rack. Finally, we found this antenna coupler. The customs guys are there are all getting towy and so forth, wondering what we're in, importing, all the rest of it. And a big can. We pulled open the can, rolled out, and the electronics guy went, oh, no, the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you, th you might think this is pretty cool. We've got to wait another two days. The trouble is, by now, we've run out of money. We have physically running out of money. We can't pay motel bills. We can't buy booze or anything like that. We've got to get out of Dodge. So anyway, we reloaded the 707 and it went. We went back to the Caribbean and uh, looked at this thing. And I said, I said to this electronics guy, I said, you know, surely we can you know, modify this somehow to make it work. He said, oh, no, I couldn't, wouldn't touch that. So we got the bird out one on the on the rear. We're working on the rear ramp with a customs guy standing next to us the whole time because we're, you know, this is all sort of what is this thing that we're playing with. Yeah. So we got the, the busted one out and the new one, unscrewed the top covers, and they looked identical inside, wiring-wise. It was just plugs or something were different. And you could see straight away which had burnt out. This big aluminium tubey looking thing, I don't know what you call them, was all charred and melted. Yeah. And the other one was perfectly fine. So I said, well, that one fits in the rack and this one's got a perfectly fine doodad. Why don't we swap that doodad for that one? He said, oh, well, how are you going to do that? I said, easy. I've got a pair of side cutters. So I went, snip, snip. <laughs> He's like, but you're destroying a perfectly good one. I said, it's not perfectly good. We can't use it. Pulled it out, snipped the other one off, twisted the things together, a bit of masking tape, put them all together, rolled it into the rack, switched on the radio. Beep. Hello, Sydney. This is us on the ground in Bali. Hi, how are you doing? I even got a phone patch home to my wife to say we're delayed a bit, love. It worked perfectly wow. with a bit of masking tape. So <laughs> this electronics guy's going, I'll be buggered. <laughs> so we strapped it all together. And the next morning we, we had to get out of there. As it turned out, we didn't have enough money to pay for the, uh, the airport landing charges. When we got there, I said to this Indonesian guy, how much for landing charges? Oh, no, no, no charge. Right? So we spent three days there at this stage until it came time to file our flight plan to go. He said, now you pay. You said there were no landing charge. No, no, departure charge. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, we had a, a local embassy guy there who wanted me to smuggle some some stuff home for him. So he said, I'll pay. <laughs> he paid. And I took this, pack. I don't know what it was, we're smuggling home for him. Anyway, we uh, we cranked up, we flew across to Timor Sea with a perfectly functional HF radio and got into Broome the next night. And this is where the next curious thing happened. <clears throat> we just arrived from overseas, right? all through Southeast Asia. I had this bag of something from this embassy. I don't know what it was. I think it was just a present for his wife or something, yeah. or his, his sister. It was pretty, probably pretty innocuous if anyone wanted to rip it apart. But the guys at Broome weren't the slightest bit interested in, in, in ripping it apart. They just wanted to know how much booze we had on board, right. which we pulled off a whole esky full. And we all went around to the local motel and they drank most of our booze. Right? And they put these stickers all over the caribou. Um, it was bonded over. I said to them, I said, it's going to take us two days to get to the other side of Australia, you know. Oh, you'll be right, you'll be right. So, and this was sat. I mean, it was a Saturday night. Come Sunday morning, we've got to fly direct line to Alice Springs across the most inhospitable countryside in the goddamn world, you know, across the whole of the West, uh, West Australia. So about eight o'clock in the morning, we're ready to go, and here's our caribou all sitting there with stickers all over the doors. So I rang up this, this um, customs guy. Hello? <laughs> Where are you? 
I'm still in bed. Hey, we're supposed to be here to unbond us. Oh, you'll be right. Go. <laughs> that was the, that was <laughs> so we ripped all the labels off and got into the caribou and psh, headed off across to Alice Springs. Drone, drone, drone. Four or five thousand feet at 140 knots after mile after mile of desert. Again, you know, the radio edge were pretty slim, except at both ends. So basically, we're just using the standard old techniques that we'd learned. Got into Alice Springs late in the afternoon, and there we are sitting with the caribou open on the ramp because it was hot and sticky, not far away from this Boeing 737, which had just landed. And off that gets an old buddy of mine. He's he's an aerobatic pilot and an ex-Air Force guy. He wanders across, we're having a bit of a chat. I could have slipped him any contraband I had right there, you know, no problem at all. And anyway, so he went his way, we went ours. The next day, we again put it all together, cranked it up and flew across to Cobar, where we refuelled. Again, all open. Finally lobbed into Sydney, Richmond Air Base, late in the afternoon. And we're immediately directed to uh, taxi to the customs holding area for clearance. By now, we're all a bit hot and tired and cranky. Just flying across Australia in a caribou is not fun. And I said, oh, bugger this. I just taxied the airplane straight down to the squadron lines, right? Oh, all hell broke loose. These customs guy comes screaming, you're not supposed to go there. We've got a customs clear you. Rah, rah, rah. And I said, I've already, we've already been cleared. We were cleared in Broome, you know? Yeah. Where's the paperwork? Oh, he was asleep at the time. <laughs> 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 and I mean, all the wives running up and my wife got a big, big hollow kiss. Don't stand back. Don't touch him. Yeah, you know, Oh, for God's sake. So I, I, I blew my cool at this custom guy and basically told him to piss off. <laughs> that, yeah, if, you, if you want to clear us, it's already been done. You know, I could have offloaded the contraband at Alice Springs last night and all the rest of it. Yeah. And they were pretty miffed at me and I didn't care. This is my last flight. <clears throat> I, I'm already been posted out, you know. And that was kind of the, the, the glorious, inglorious end to my last operational flight in the Caribou. <laughs> I had a few more um, gash ones afterwards, but not in operational nature. Um, which we can talk about as part of my civilian side of life. In fact, I touched on it a little bit, I think, when we talked about uh, uh, my Ryan STM on that particular thing, right? Yeah, we did, yes. The very last flight I did in the Caribou was to go down to look at the, the Ryan. I wasn't a member of the squadron, but I was on a staff officer, and I had entitlement to a little bit of gash flying. Yeah. And so my buddy, Phil Ashley, who was the flight commander then, said, yeah, no problem, let's go for a flight. So a couple of flights like that, the Getting Charlie one was the very, very last one. But this one back from uh, from Denpasar and uh, in Pakistan was um, the last official one. Right? Right. The caribou was all painted white with United Nations colours and all that sort of stuff, and we're all wearing the blue berets to, to pass through the various customs things. And even that was tricky. I mean, we talked. I talked before about having a book on landing procedures. Yeah. The guys who'd been ferrying back and forth up the caribous about every three months or so, we'd swap a caribou over up there. Also wrote a book on how to get through some of the airport procedures in India, in particular, right? Okay. Yeah. Because these Indians, how can I put it, without being too impolite, are very stuck in the old British way of doing things, right? Yeah. You'd go into the office, and they had this pad of forms that had to fill out with carbon paper, five forms, four layers of carbon, and the guy would meticulously peel back the piece of paper and lay out the carbon and peel it back. It would take five minutes just to get the form prepared for the data he wanted to record. Now, aircraft type, call sign, captain's name, where are you? And then you get right to the bottom and say, okay, uh, show, me, show me your clearance number one, two, three, four. We don't have a clearance one, two, three, four. 
Well, that's a that's available at uh, at this office on the airfield. Where is that office? Oh, it's over the other side of the airfield, next to the such and such. Okay, don't go away. So we go across the other side. You know, half an hour to get the other side of the airfield to go in to get this form. And this guy would say, "Oh, yes, we can give you that form, but first you better show me your X Y Z." We don't have an X Y Z. Where do I get that? Oh, at the office next door to the one that you were just from. <laughs> so over the period, these guys had written the how to do it book of getting through this in the most efficient way. So instead of taking four hours to get off the airfield, it would only take you an hour and a half of going to all of these different things and filling this form and paying this money to the point where when we did it, we followed this book and it worked. Fortunately, otherwise I think I would have lost it again there. Yeah. India, we had to do it at Delhi and we had to do it at Calcutta. Once we got to Malaya, no sweat. And Indonesia, they couldn't give a damn. <laughs> so it was okay. But it was very challenging. We stayed the night in Calcutta, and I had two co-pilots, so, so it was three of us, so we could rotate a little bit. Yeah. And uh, one of them, he got quite sick. We had to get a doctor into him. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, what are the doctors like in Calcutta? Because Calcutta was, is not, shall we say, the, the cleanest of places I've ever been in my life. Right. Yeah. It's not. In fact, <laughs> I can remember when I was just a little kid, uh, my father used to use this phrase, uh, it was just like the black hole of Calcutta, when he was referring to something which wasn't really good. Yeah. As soon as we landed in Calcutta and drove into town, I took one look and thought, there's no black hole of Calcutta. The whole of Calcutta is a black hole. It really was. <laughs> yeah. It was a horrible place. I believe it's improved a lot since then. This is the yeah, 70s. Anyway, so he, he was given all sorts of drugs and things to cure him, and so he just lay down the back for the next league because we got to Butterworth, we had a proper base hospital there. As it turned out, the drugs really worked. By the time he got there, he was fine. Okay. So the doctor actually you know, knew his stuff. It's just that you just didn't, didn't trust the whole environment. Yeah. But going directly from Calcutta over the top of Rangoon and then into Bangkok, that's right, overnight Bangkok. Fortunately, that was the next night we had to go to Butterworth, so... Uh, in the, but he was okay by the time I got to Bangkok because even then they had better facilities there. But you couldn't go direct from uh, from Calcutta to Rangoon because you went through Bangladeshi airspace. Right. And that was also funny. Bangladeshi airspace and they had a Bangladeshi radar or some guy on this HF who was on the same frequency as all the others. And from the time we got airborne and just cleared from the air traffic control circuit and went across the international HF thing, here's this Bangladeshi thing talking at us. United Nations, one, two, three, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you, confirm you're not violating airspace. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, yeah, we're not. And he come back five minutes, are you sure? Because you have to take this dog leg down south of India and then across the Bank, Sea of Bengal, whatever it is. But he kept at us and at us and at us, like you're driving us nuts. And I turned to my co-pilot and I said, do the Bangladeshis actually have any fighter interceptors? Nope. Click. <laughs> <laughs> We just turned him off. <laughs> what can they possibly do? Their only weapon was him yelling at people over the HF. <laughs> and then we got into uh, Bangkok and had a good night in Bangkok, as everyone is prone to do. And the next morning, another curious little thing happened. For some reason, it was actually quite chilly in Bangkok that morning. Not super chilly, but colder than normal. And of course, it's a very, very busy jet airliner airfield. There are no run-up bays for piston engine airplanes. You start a jet, you taxi out, you go. Jet engines are sort of automatically warmed up. That's the very nature of the beast. The same in the Sabre. You just taxi straight down and take off. So I thought, I oh, will do the right thing. We'll crank up the boo. I'll, I'll idle the engines for 10 minutes and warm them all up, do a run-up. And so, we're set. so when we call for 
taxi, we can just go and join the queue and don't hold anybody up. That was a good idea of being very good for them, I thought. So I did this. I then called up and asked for taxi clearance. And the, uh, the Thai and the thing came back and said, uh, United Nations, one, two, three, um, not two, four, so I can remember that <clears throat> I note that you've already started your engines. Affirmative. You did not call for a start clearance. Uh, yeah, well, but normally if you're a jet, you know, I just said what I said to you. He said, but you did not call for a start clearance. I thought, oh, shit, here we go. <clears throat> I said, okay, request start clearance, but your engines are already turning. <laughs> uh, I said to him, I said, do you expect me to shut them down, get a clearance and start them up again? And, no, but I think you should come to the tower and talk to me. I said, look, I can't. We're on diplomatic clearances. We've got to be certain times around here. I thought I was doing the right thing by not blocking your taxiway while I spent 15 minutes running up and warming my engines and blocking it off. And it was a pause. You can see him thinking about that. And just as he was thinking about this, this Qantas 707 taxis passed. And the guy comes and says, hang in there, boy. You'll get it. What <laughs> 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 are the Aussies of this one? Yeah. So he finally came back and said, oh, well, he said, in that case, you are cleared to taxi. Be ready, immediate takeoff when you get there. All the checks are done, the pipes are set. And so he, he, he was now pushing it to our word. We weren't going to hold up at all. Yeah. So we never, we never broke our pace after that. We rolled straight on, zoom. And then just for short measure, I dropped stole takeoff flap and went raw I was airborne in two aircraft legs <laughs> just just to stick it up him and then flew away <clears throat> butterworth and beyond the air traffic procedures were much much simpler apart so it was all these little things you know yeah. nothing to do with flying airplanes just the the the, the bureaucracy involved um sometime in my civilian sort of life running air shows and things i met a guy um who flew a, oh, what was it called? A little um, Compass Swift, that's right, oh, Compass yes, Swift? Yep. I think it was a little, 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 little radial engine thing, yeah? Um, his name was Arthur Butler. He flew it from London to Melbourne or to Sydney way back in the 30s, and at that stage it set a new world speed record for doing it, right? He did the whole thing navigating on a page out of an atlas, and he landed at British air bases wherever he wanted, because in those days, the sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah. And he said, when I'd land there, they'd rush out and wipe my windscreen and top up my oil and fuel and, and, and give me a car to drive me to the mess, he said. He said, now, there's no way. And of course, he's absolutely right. There's no way you could do that in this day and age. A little while ago, the guy just got arrested and almost had his airplane confiscated in Indonesia because he got there a day late or a day early or something or other. And they're all hidebound with bureaucracy. Yeah. So airplanes have opened up the world and bureaucracy has closed it down again. Right, right. Crazy. Yeah. And I just got a little inkling of this and I can't imagine trying to fly across the Middle East right now with oh, what's going on there. Yeah, that would be awful. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you'd either wind up in a, in, a, in, a, in a prison for the rest of your life or you'd have a, a guided missile up the rear end of your airplane blow you out of the sky. Yeah. So it's, in that regard, it's, it's a lot worse. The old boo just kept on flying it didn't care but all the paperwork so most of the trip was involved in all of this stuff and of course being a, a foreign military airplane <clears throat> under united nations colors a lot of the the people were a little confused as to who you were who you belonged to and what was your authority for being there you know yeah. so you had to sort of talk your way through all of these things oh just one other little thing on this particular trip which i thought was was quite eerie too the whole because of the indian indian pakistan conflict now I'm, I'm going way back but it doesn't seem to have changed now over and above all of the civilian um, radio procedures, which we had to involve ourselves with, you know, flying around the countryside, even though a military airplane. But in India, they have this oversight radar across the whole continent and an oversight 
if you like, watcher. He, he's listening to all frequencies, okay. all the civilian frequencies. He can also, he listens to and can also chime in on. And in those days, he was called Alpha Control. Yeah. Right? And he, had the, he was the final arbiter. So a, an air traffic controller could say, yeah, tractor here, go there, make your final approach. Alpha Control could come back and say, negative, I want that aircraft turned around, or something like that. Right. He didn't like what he was, who this person was. So coming from Pakistan into India, we had to fly to the Indian border, a particular town, and then fly along the border for 20 minutes to another town, and then into, into India. And in this 20 minute track along the border is where they assessed our paperwork and diplomatic clearances and flight plan, and all this sort of stuff, right? Yep. So we get to the, the first town and call up United Nations 123 on diplomatic clearance XYZ, rhubarb, 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 and we're tracking from here to here, and the guy will come back and say, okay, stand by, you know, sort of out. Ten minutes later, come back and say, Roger, it's all it's all approved. Yes, track to there and go and head on to Delhi. And after he said that, this other voice comes on and said, "This is Alpha Control. We concur." <laughs> and I thought it was like God is watching because <laughs> I was wondering what he would do if you know he come back and say, "We do not concur. The missiles have been launched or something like that." <laughs> <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> So threading your way through all of that was 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 interesting. Um, we got to have a day off in Delhi. Went to saw the Taj Mahal, which was very touristy, very pretty, but very touristy. Driving home, my same co-pilot who got ill wanted to get out of the taxi. We had this Morris Oxford taxi cab. Yeah. We drove down there, and it's, it's about a six-hour, four-hour, five-hour drive. I didn't realize it's so far. Agra is so far south of Delhi. If I'd realized the time, we probably wouldn't have gone because we spent all day in this damn taxi. Had a good time there, went to a few other places. We're driving home, of course, it gets dark. And this thing has a six volt headlights, <clears throat> which means they can see about one car length ahead of us. And this guy's driving like crazy. And of course, when it gets dark, the warmest place around is the road, the bitumen. And all the sacred cows move up onto the bitumen. Right. And as I say, I'm, I'm just, I just shut my eyes and my co-pilot it was just saying, stop the car, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to die, I want to get out, I'll walk the rest of the way. <laughs> it's still two hours to Delhi, I don't care, I don't want to die. <laughs> he was quite beside himself. That was probably the hairiest part of the entire trip, was driving in this taxi cab wow. back into Delhi from Agra. And now I'm prattling on, I don't know how much further we can go with this particular one. Well, the, we, the only <clears> other thing that I was going to ask you, know, is... Um, both as the flight commander, when you're a flight commander and, and looking after all the guys in your flight, mm. all the different crews um, who were, as you said, all over the place, and then also even more so when you were the squadron commander and you've got three flights worth of yeah. crews everywhere. Well, did, two. One of them was just a training well, flight, which yeah, is local. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was get, like the fighter squadron. That was easy. <laughs> yeah. did, did you get much actual time to fly yourself um, away, ah. away from the unit? And, and if you were away flying on a particular operation, you know, how did you keep control of everyone else when you're away? Ah, well, that's a very good question. Two parts to that. Jeff Michaels, when he first came down, he said, Noel, he said, you have to keep flying. He said, it's so easy for you to get bogged down on in the paperwork crossing this desk. Right. He said, you have to walk away from it and fly at least once a week. Right. I, I tried to make my flying rate turned out to be about half of what a line pilot was at that stage because okay. I took him at his word. Um, I had some very interesting staff around me. I had a young um, adjutant working for me who, believe it or not, later 
later in life, because my daughter, years and years later, joined the Air Force as a stores accountant for a few years, right. three years, and she worked for him, <laughs> for this young guy yeah. who was my adjutant, because, again, bureaucracy. The bean counters, in their wisdom, always want to make someone more senior responsible for, for trivia. For instance, one of the guys out in the hangar might rip his overalls, right? Yeah. And go to get a new pair or wear out his work boots faster than what the statistics say he should. Therefore, he could be scamming the system. So it needs CO's authority for him to exchange them earlier than normal. Yeah. So all this sort of crap would come across my desk. And I used to, it just used to pile up because I just didn't, I thought, this is crazy. I didn't. So I just hand it all to Adjo and say, you sign it on my behalf. Yep. Don't screw up. Do it. And of course, he never did. That was his job. Yeah. So I got rid of all that sort of stuff and, and, and would go flying. What did it happen when I was away? Well, the, the flight commander and the execo had been appointed could step up and become the TCO and, the, and, and, and take care of it whilst I wasn't there. Plus, as I said earlier on, it wasn't, once I, I understood the system, it wasn't that hard to control them. Right. As a CO, you don't control people. You, don't, you can't micromanage that number of people. You have to rely upon the pilots to do their things because right. you send them away. You can't be there. When they come home, you, you shouldn't then start to micromanage them. If you trusted them when they're away, you've got to trust them when they're there. Yeah. So in many ways, even though it was a big squadron, it tended to sort of self-run. I will raise, just going way back to the previous posting, I, when I first got the job as flight commander, I had a situation just like this. Right? Yeah. I was the A-flight commander as a flight lieutenant, just been boosted up. And what we also had as part of, 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 the, of the flight, a one flying instructor. There were flying instructors doing the conversion courses. There was one other flying instructor who was part of A-Flight. His job was to do certain checks and all that sort of stuff. Right? He was actually uh, about my seniority, I can't remember which, but also a much more experienced caribou pilot than I. And he was a little bit miffed when I got to be uh, the flight commander and not him, because yeah. he had a specific job to do. He couldn't do both. right? Yeah. And he'd just done a, a, an upgrade on a particular pilot from C category to a B category uh, caribou pilot, which means the guy's pretty good. He knows his stuff. He's been doing it for a few years. You can trust him to do anything, even run detachments and so forth. No one got to be A category in, in caribous for some reason. You're all B categories. I finally got to be that when I was the CO, I think. <laughs> anyway, this particular day, we had to send a caribou over to Bankstown Airport. 15 minutes flying away because they had this uh, corrosion um, inhibiting program going on. We sent Hawker to Havilands at Bankstown were doing it for us yeah. rather than our own maintenance thing where they just scrape corrosion off and paint it again, all sort of stuff. Each caribou's over there for a couple of weeks doing it. Yeah. And this job, it was a simple job. So I called on this guy. He'd just been upgraded as BCAT and um, he, the next week he was heading off to North Queensland for a week to do his thing, you know, fully responsible guy. I said, listen, would you mind popping that caribou over to, to Hawkers? There'll be a car there to drive you home. Yeah, no problem at all. So, so he goes out and starts to fly the caribou. About the time we hear the caribou starting up, because I'm in this little dungeon of an office I can't see out as the flight commander, you hear this clap of thunder. Boom! Caribou's engine start up. Okay, fine. And next thing you hear is another clap of thunder and the roar of caribou engine is taking off. And my flying instructor guy sticks his head out and said, what's he doing? I said, he's just taking a caribou to hawkers. But it's a big thunderstorm out there. So? Well, you shouldn't be flying in those sort of conditions. Now, either he can't see the storm or the airplane, and I can't see the storm airplane because where we were. And I said, um, 
he's going to North Queensland next week. Who knows how many thunderstorms he'll encounter there. He's probably got a better view of it right now than you have. This was no good for this guy. He goes straight across to the new CO, right? Who acquiesced and called him back. So here's this caribou obviously running away from the storm, but is told, come back. So he turns around and lands in the middle of the thunderstorm. Did a really good job with, you know, 20 knot crosswind and so forth, lands this caribou and then walks in saying, what's going on? I was trying to get away from the bloody thing, not land back in it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I was called back. By who? By the CO. I thought, oh, Jesus, here we go. Next thing I get a buzz on the phone. Oh, come over here and talk to me. So I go over and here's my opposition and the new CO. Um, and I just walked in and, uh, and they said, oh, this is this is not good. I said, you're damn right it's not good. You made me the flight commander. Do you want me to be one or not? And he has just upgraded him to Category B and next week he's going away to North Queensland. Do we trust him or don't we trust him? He was running away from the storm and you brought him back into it. Now, am I going to be your flight commander or do you want to make him the flight commander? And the CEO sort of went, um, okay, enough said. <laughs> and dismissed the whole thing there. Right. Um, and this guy and I didn't get on really well for him. We're now great mates. We got over that. And afterwards, he actually said, he said, yeah, you're right. He said, I was trying to micromanage. And that's what flying instructors do. They try and micromanage. Yeah, yeah. Having assessed this guy as being capable, he wouldn't let, let go. It's almost like letting your daughter go out, you know, make her own decisions about who she's going to date. You right, know, right. I've been through that too. You've got to cut the umbilical cord. They're old enough to do their own thing. And yeah, this guy was quite competent and would, actually did the right thing. Saw the storm coming, so got the hell out of Richmond. Right. Uh, the storm was nowhere near where it was going. But that was one of those situations where you can't micromanage it too much. You have to trust them because you, tra- you train them and then you turn them loose. And it's not like just turning your daughter loose because you expect her home that night or at least the next morning. These guys wouldn't come home for a week or so. And it's only rarely that did you ever get any feedback. When I was the CEO, I had one very interesting thing. All this, for some reason, Magazines would come across your desk on things you, you just had no idea what they were even doing there. Someone thought you might want to read this. Well, someone had actually picked up on this article and signed this thing. And it was a, it was a magazine uh, published by some um, bushwalking group. And I thought, what the hell? But the little thing was dog-eared. I opened up to the dog-eared thing, and there's this little article about, oh, we had a wonderful bushwalk uh, in Fraser Island, which is a big sand island up north Queensland there had a wonderful bushwork and it was so peaceful except for the for the roaring of the caribous going past but all we could see was their fin behind the sand dunes <laughs> with, with, with a date of when they did their bushwalk so i went back and i looked through the authorization document found the pilot that into my office yes sir read that he read that and went oh shit <laughs> i said you've been sprung oh well, yeah okay I said, just remember, like, what can you do? I mean, the airplane wasn't bad. I said, you just got to remember, there's people out there can see everything you do and it's going to filter back. Just yeah. cool it. What else could you say? It was some months later and it was all over. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so from time to time, you, you got the, sprung these guys doing something like that, but then, hey, I've done it too. Mm. There, but for the grace of God, go I. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... You just caution them to be a little more careful. You know, Fraser Island is a big tourist island. Don't do it. If you want to do it, go way up north near Cook Strait or something, or Cook Island or something like that. Yeah, do it. So again, I'm rambling a bit, but at the end of the day, I, as the CEO, I could go away 
for two, three days and come back and everything was fine. It was just, everyone would just do what they would do normally. Yeah. I suppose in a way, the best analogy I can come up with is like the conductor of an orchestra. Sometimes I wonder what the conductor actually does because when you look at the close-up movies of the orchestra, they're all reading the music, not looking at him. Yeah. He kind of keeps time, but I think if he just walked away, they'd keep playing for another 30 minutes until they realized he wasn't there. Right. You know, because they're all professionals at their job and they probably keep time themselves. Uh, I think it's the same thing as being a CEO of, of, a, of, a, of a responsible group of people. Right. You can't micromanage them. Again, long-winded answer to your question. Well, I alluded to a few other things along the way there about because in these desk jobs, I started getting involved in civilian operations and air shows and so forth. So maybe that's where we should head next time because that really led me into the second half of my life after I left the Air Force. But obviously, a discussion for another time. Absolutely. Well, we'll come back in a future episode. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Noel. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.